Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy from Ops Analytica. You know, when we have new clients uh, talking to us and they are figuring out if they want to have an operations management platform like Ops Analytica in their business, one of the big sort of emotional hurdles they have to kind of get through is what we call the big brother conundrum, right? And what that is, is that they want more visibility, more control at the shift level. They want to know that their employees are doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're doing them at the right time. They want all of that, what we'll call big brother stuff, right? But at the same time, they don't want to be perceived as being big brother. Nobody wants to be the Stalin of their 20 location chain, right? And so what we tell them is don't focus on the control aspect of things, focus on the data, right? You want more data on every part of your operation so that you can make better decisions and you can make those better decisions faster so that you can get rid of the things in your business that are impacting sales, profits, and customer satisfaction. And making data-driven decisions is probably the biggest thing you can do to positively impact your profitability, right? So focus on the data. It's all about the data. And by the way, though, if you're collecting all this data, you're going to get some of those other big brother things that you wanted on the side for free, okay? So learn how you can get better data to make better decisions and be more profitable. Contact us for a demo at opsanalytica.com. Hey there, Order Up Show. It's me, Tommy. I am back with another episode. Please welcome to the show, Adam Knight. How are you doing, Adam? I'm great, Tommy. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome, man. This is uh, the Order Up Show where we're talking to hospitality professionals. And um, let's just, we do the same five questions every time, Adam. Uh, and my the first question is my favorite question, which is, are you ready? Explain yep. what you do today, but then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. <laughs> oh man, never been asked that before. Um, <laughs> so my my career progression, I guess I'll start. I'm going to start at the beginning, and then I'll kind of take you to where things are at today, just to give uh, maybe a little more context. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a hotel guy. I started in the industry about 25 years ago. My first job was in the Canadian Rockies uh, at a ski resort. I was a pot washer right out of high school, 17 years old. And the only thing that I knew for sure when I graduated high school is I did not want to go on to any sort of post-secondary university, community college, anything. I just wanted to get out and work. So for some reason, my parents allowed me to uh, apply for a, a live-in staff accommodation job at a ski resort um, away from home when I was 17. Uh, my, I was, my mom had to co-sign the lease for me because I was obviously not 18, so I couldn't even sign a contract. Uh, but I did that for a little while and uh, eventually uh, moved back to uh, to my hometown, Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, got a job as a bellman, uh, which was my kind of my second and most fun job, uh, actually, incidentally, uh, in the hotel business. Uh, did that for a few years and then eventually went on to a hotel restaurant program, uh, joined up with Fairmont Hotels uh, in Canada. And then that's really when things took off. So kind of moved all over Western Canada with them. Came to, I went to Bermuda back at the beginning of the 2000s, which was their only real international outpost at the time. Uh, it, it was still Canadian Pacific. at the, Anyway, we could get into that if you want to. But anyway, that was the only international I, outpost available. Uh, I've and, seen that hotel. That's yeah. Like, oh, that, like one of the best beaches in the world beach, right? Like, that's right the one. There. 
That's right. Yeah. Oh my God. I love yep. Bermuda. We're, yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It was, it was amazing. Uh, and then I came to the U S in 2004, uh, and I've been down here ever since I was at the Fairmont San Francisco for a while, uh, moved up and down the West coast, went out to DC, went down to Barbados. I left the company, um, as a GM about seven, seven or eight years ago, joined up with St. Regis, uh, worked with them for a little while. Uh, kind of, again, uh, ran the, the St. Regis Monarch beach in Orange County, California, which is now Waldorf. Um, and then uh, took on my first VP of operations role after that in San Francisco for a hotel company there. And then came to Seattle where I'm based now. Uh, and I did a similar job for a hotel company here. So that's where, you know, the W2 stuff ends. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, uh, ended up getting laid off like just about everybody in this business. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I had my what I figured was a safe, high level corporate hotel job at the start of the pandemic. Uh, and so after laying a bunch of people off uh, hourly positions at our hotels, I ended up getting pulled into the office and getting laid off myself, which was a, a great experience. Um, and decided like, I didn't know what I was going to do with my time, my 25 years and industries collapsing around me. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and so I had always wanted to start a hotel management company. Um, and I saw there was some room in the way hotel management agreements were structured. Uh, between management companies and, and hotel owners where I thought that I could come in and, and make a difference. Uh, and so I, I built the company based on those sort of very simple structural changes to a management company, effectively basing management fees off of profit, not off revenue, uh, which had held a lot more accountability for the management company than it does currently with the structures the way they are today on the, on the owner side. And we could dive into that if you want, but that's that, that, that could be yeah, pretty dry if, dry if nobody is interested in that. Um, and <laughs> through that whole building that company, uh, I started a hospitality podcast called the, the Proven Principles Podcast, which is essentially just a way to look behind the curtain of what some of the best hotels in the world are doing. And I, I was trying to just provide information for colleagues on how to get through the pandemic and, and come out on the other side, uh, whether you are you know, an hourly worker, whether you're a manager, an owner, just something that you can get your arms around to make things a little bit better for yourself. And through that, I ended up uh, work, meeting and in, in working with my, a business partner here in Washington State, uh, where he's a hotel guy too. But he had started getting into short-term rentals. And we'd had a lot of conversations back and forth for, uh, for a little while about the overlap between hotels and, and short-term rentals, Airbnbs, as it were. And ultimately, we decided to start a vacation rental management company because we saw that there was, again, a gap in bringing a lot of the hospitality practices and philosophies and checklists and ways of operating and taking care of customers and taking care of owners and all those things um, and, and professionalizing the Airbnb world. Uh, and so we, at the beginning of 2021, we started our uh, vacation rental management company, uh, Re Recreation, and uh, we've been sort of off on this trajectory now for the last effectively 12 months of growing this brand uh, of vacation rental um, managed properties being done through the lens of, of luxury hotel management. So that, that's, what, that's where I'm at today. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper. And then I want to go back to Bermuda because I just, I'm like in love with Bermuda. And then I want to also talk about the management company structure because I think that's awesome. But so do you guys own these properties or are you managing them for the person who actually owns the property? We manage them for people who actually own the property. So, you know, we, we typically, 
what'll and I've done this myself where you'll go out and, and you'll say like, you know, I want to have a, a, an investment property. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to put a long-term renter in there and, you know, hopefully everything works out. So that that's been the typical road that a lot of real estate investors have taken. If they want to buy second, third, fourth homes, if they're not like vacation homes for them. Um, and we've been able to have conversations with some of these second, third, fourth homeowners to say that that may not be the best use of your asset. You may be able to make more money doing it as a short-term rental. And sure, there's some costs associated with that because you have to furnish the place and there's some permitting in some cases that you have to obtain as the home homeowner. But the benefits are, number one, you can almost always make more money as a short-term rental. The second benefit is that we have eyes on your property just about every other day because we're always, you're, you're sort of turning those reservations, right? So a long-term renter, uh, you, you never see the place, you never see the condition of it and, unless they call you because there's a problem or really until they move out. And so you don't know if your place is getting trashed or, or, or they're not taking care of it. So it, it's, it's maybe a little counterintuitive, but as a short-term rental, you're actually better able to take care of the asset because you're in there all the time and you can fix little things that come up rather than having all of these things compound. And all of a sudden you've got this great big issue that takes your place offline and has to paying a lot of money uh, to fix whatever a long-term renter did. Uh, and, and so we, I mean, we can get into some other details, but that those are sort of the two value adds that we bring to the conversation when somebody's deciding how they want to, how they want to make money on this real estate investment. And then do you guys provide the marketing as well and getting them up on all the platforms? Is this like a turnkey solution where I go, Hey, I just got this, you know, mountain house and I just want you guys to take it over and, and, and run it. Or are they doing a lot of that stuff and you're just making sure the building's okay? We're a hundred percent turnkey. So we take care of everything from getting the home ready for guests uh, at the start. So building the listing, getting the photography taken, getting all of the tech put into the house that we need to have there to, to run it. Uh, and then getting the house listed on all the different listing sites it's Airbnb, Verbo, and there's there's you know 30, 35 of them out there. And we find the cleaners, we find the maintenance people, we manage them, we make sure that the place is uh, cleaned and stocked and turned. We do all of the the guest, the reservation sales. We do all the guest communication pre, during, and post stay. Um, and and then we flip it again, and we we do it for the next uh, the next guest coming in. So you as an owner you can be involved if or we do all the revenue management too, which I think is important to say. So we set the rates and, and make sure we're charging the, the right guest, the right amount at the right time. Um, sure. And so as an owner, you can be as involved as you want to be. And most of our owners that we work with uh, not to be crude, but they really just, they just want to collect a check at the end of the month. And yeah. so we, uh, we deduct our, uh, our management fees and then they, they get everything else. So then let me ask you this, as a key to success to this business, trying to get a lot of properties in a, in a, um, a small area, if you will, or a concentrated area. So you can, you so you can, you know, economies of scale, right? Like now you have one clean lady that's running 20 properties versus, you know, having to find a new clean lady in every town. Yeah. Is that kind of part of your model. Yeah, it is. It's definitely you, you we're we're trying to create these operational hubs where we don't want to be sort of scattered across a large geographic area where you got like one house here, one house there. It's a lot easier to to operate like we're based in Seattle, so it's a lot easier for us to have a a grouping of homes in Seattle and then maybe we can have a grouping of homes in another 
area somewhere in Washington state, or we can go down into Portland or San Francisco, wherever. Um, because it's, yeah, I mean, you know, just, just from, a, a, an operational effectiveness, if one of us, if we have to have somebody go out and do some home inspections and we can get into the detail of how we make sure that homes look as good as they can, you know, that, that can be very hands-on or if you have to go fix a problem. So it's easier to just go across town than across state. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, okay. So now we know what you're doing today. Um, like, I, I guess I never asked this question. Do you love it? Like versus the hotels and the W2, cause you were a W2 for your whole life, basically. Yep. You know, how are you liking entrepreneurship? Like, are you enjoying it? Like, I tell me it. more. I love it. I love it. I feel like I had always had this entrepreneurial itch. Um, I shouldn't say always, but for a long time later in my career, I had this itch. Uh, and my both of my parents were entrepreneurs. I think it kind of runs in the family, runs in the blood. And uh, I feel like even though at the time the circumstances were such where I was kind of upset and bitter about it, I, once I took the emotion out of it, you know, I felt sorry for myself for a day, day and a half, and then figured like, okay, we got to get on with life here. Once I started having conversations with people and talking to others in the industry that were going through something similar and doing the podcast, honestly, was a big, was a big kind of therapeutic release and had, a, again, had gave me an opportunity to talk to people, expand my network. They helped me figure out through those conversations, what it is I should be putting some attention to. And through, you know, many months and a lot of conversations, it kind of helped me get to where I am today. And I, I'm so happy. And, you know, sure, I'm not making as much money now as I did before in the W2 job. Um, I'm hoping now that, you know, building a company that that is trying to do something different in an, an, a relatively new industry when you're talking about hotels and hospitality, uh, you know, I think that that's going to come, but the fulfilling part of the business here or the fulfilling side of, of doing the work for the business is that, you know, I know that we're building something interesting and I get to do it on, on my own terms now. And that's something that having worked for very successful brands in the past, I was never able to do. And so I, I now it's almost like you kind of get proof of concept. Like you think, okay, okay. Hotshot. You think you're good at what you're doing get yep. out of the, you know, get out of this away from the safety net and do it on your own. And let's see how good you really are. Well, and you get to a point, I think too, as you get older, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have that 10 year, like stand up comedy gap. So like, I'm really a 40 year old, like in every aspect, except for actual age, like career wise, <laughs> but I'm a 50 year old in like the real world, because I spent 10 years screwing around doing stand up. Which, which, by the way, was awesome and would never take back. But, you know, you get to a point where you're like, man, I've made a lot of people a lot of money, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like, it's like, I would like to make myself a lot of money, too, at some point. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you go, hey, you know, you ran the St. Regis, you know? That hotel was probably doing 30, 40, 50 million dollars a year, right? Uh, so, like. more than More than that. Yeah, made a lot of money. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so you were like the GM of like you know a hundred, let's say a hundred million dollar year property. Yeah, yeah. And those investors, obviously, and they deserve their invest the return on their investment. But you're making a lot of money for them, so you're like, you know, maybe I bet on myself for once. Well, that's a really and, good point. 
Yeah, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but you just bring up something that's kind of near and dear to my heart here where you're right, you put in, especially in hospitality, anybody who's listening to this, like who's who's been on the front lines, who's been in this industry for a while, like it is a hard way to make a living. And anytime you want to take time off or anytime you try to negotiate an extra weeks of vacation when you're taking a new job or you're trying to get an extra buck or two an hour, like you're always met with resistance, right? And for, for varying reasons. And... I think that was that was a realization for me early on through this experience where I realized like I have all the freedom in the world now. I can make as much money as I want. I can take off as much time as I want. I can be as successful as I want or not. But it, it's all predicated on the effort that I put in now to build my own thing. It's not about how the effort that I'm putting in is graded against uh, a series of other you know, whether it's personality conflicts or, or known and unknown criteria that another manager is grading your performance at. And in, in my former world, like you were really only as good as your last PL in a lot of cases, especially when you get to like the GM level, like you could have a series of not great months or quarters and find yourself out. It doesn't really matter how good all the other metrics are that you're performing. And so I, I think the entrepreneurial world for a lot of people is, is there's a lot of freedom there and that freedom can be scary for some, but you know, I've chosen to embrace it. Well, and the reality is, is that, you know, a, a job or a career isn't just money, right? And, you know, I've worked, like I was, I was telling you earlier, I've, I've worked at home since 2009. This is my second company. Um, and this company, we're all 100% remote. And, you know, me and my business partner have a deal. You need to take time off. The other one covers for you. It's just, that's the way it is. There's never like, dude, you're taking another week of vacation. No, I'm totally taking another week of vacation. Yeah, I'm taking, or I'm gonna go skiing today, or whatever. Yep. Like that freedom to work from home, the freedom to work uh, remote, the freedom to um, take as much vacation as you want is that that's worth a lot of money. It is, you know? and and we're we're a hundred percent remote company, and we're building this again, which is a little bit uh, outside the box in the hospitality world where we're trying to do this thing where obviously there's no office being remote, but secondly, where we're trying to figure out a way to have people that work with us to build this company be almost as if they were gig workers, picking and choosing the things, the things that they want to do when they want to do them. Now this, it, I don't know, it, we could do it now because we're, we're relatively small and we're still growing. Yeah. As we scale, I don't know if that's going to be possible, but you know, meeting people where they're at today with regard to the work that they do and how they do it, I think is, is an important distinction to make. And in the hospitality world, you've never had the freedom to do that. So we're, we're trying to see if there's a different path. We have very similar philosophies because we don't have a vacation policy at our company. We have a get your work done policy. Yeah. If you can do all your work exactly the way it needs to be done, in 10 minutes a day, I don't care. Go right. for it. Yep. I do not care. I don't care if you do Peloton at two in the afternoon. I don't care um, if you want to work from sharp, like one of my employees, she had a bachelorette party. She, you know, she, she's young and unattached. So she's just traveling around. She goes and visits her friend. She's at a bachelorette party. You know, yep. she's working from the airport and she's working from, you know, Charlotte when she's down in Charlotte. Good for her. You know what yep. I mean? Like, I don't care. And and, you know, the big, the horrible part, I mean, I understand why big companies do this, but like, it, 
it just squashes people's spirits. You know, what I, I, mean? I want to ride the Peloton at two in the afternoon. I, I want to do that. Yeah. I have a, I have yeah. a 10 month old son. I want to hang out with them, you know, in between naps sometimes. Does that mean that I work later into the evening? Yeah, of course it does. Like, you know, especially when you're building a business, you got to be involved and every minute you're not working on it, you're not growing, but you know, the freedom here to, to have some work-life alignment, I don't want to use balance, but more alignment is, uh, is really important. And I think for me, maybe that it's a little bit more, uh, uh, I have a little bit more of a strong reaction to that because I feel like for so long in this industry, I didn't have that. And so now I get it. I'm like, I need it. Like, give it, give it to me more. I want to experience all these things that, you know, everybody else, all your buddies that you, you know, you'd call them up on Friday afternoon to see what they're doing. And, you know, they're all having beers and, and making plans for the weekend. And you're like, oh, great. I'm on my way to work at three in the afternoon and I'm not going to get home till two in the morning. And I got to do it again Saturday and probably work Sunday brunch at the same time. You just miss out on all these things. And so now, now that isn't a thing anymore. And, uh, I think that it's important to keep that perspective and not slowly drift back into that way of, of trying to earn a living for yourself. Well, and I do think it's probably one of the biggest challenges that the hospitality world has to address is the hours. And it, and, you know, everybody gets the GM of something, right? Whether it's a restaurant, a hotel, senior facility, whatever. And then, and then they just, if they can't get a job at corporate, because once you go to corporate, you go to nine to five, right? Yeah. Like you're not generally asked to work weekends. You're, it's more of a corporate job. Everyone tries to get to corporate and if they can't get to corporate. They leave the industry. And, right. you know, some people, I mean, you can do it for some period of time, but like, you know, you're going to miss your kids first steps because, you know, yeah. It was Valentine's Day was Valentine's Day weekend and you know you're gonna be hundred percent capacity and you're just gonna be walking the property. Like, um, and that's not it's not for everybody, but like they definitely like there's gotta be like the concept, like I thought it was always interesting that Chipotle did this, like they had two CEOs, you know what I mean? Mm. Like maybe there needs to be two GMs at some of these resorts. And I know GMs make a lot of money, but like you know, maybe they need to be two or three GMs. And so that like, you can have like people that can like split, split the off time and have yeah. better coverage. You know what I mean? That's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have multiple line level employees. Why aren't there multiple positions as you go up the chain? And yet cost is obviously one of them. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, look that I'd, I'd be interested to hear of a company that's doing that experiment and see how it works. Um, because you know, trying to play around with signing bonuses and and some of the other little perks that that we're seeing as uh, as recruiting is obviously is ramping up now, and I think a lot of places are still struggling. That's that's clearly not working. Uh, you know, playing yeah. with like you know four day work weeks or unlimited vacation. I got a lot of friends. I mean, I live on the West Coast, and so you, you invariably you have a lot of friends that work for tech companies when you live on the West Coast. Yeah. And, you know, I I I still don't understand why. We pre, pre years ago, way pre pandemic, we were losing people to Google, Facebook, Amazon, and and on hospitality positions, they were getting hired away to like you know run the 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 food program for Google um, employees and things like that, and they were getting lured away with you know not just big checks but but really interesting benefits, and everyone sits around a board table and scratches their head. They're like, why are we losing these people? And then you hear about the benefits they're getting. They're like, oh, no, no, that would that would never work in our business here. So we'll just resign ourselves to the fact that we're going to lose 
people to these other companies and not change at how we look at the industry and sort of the internal structure of 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 staffing and and retention and benefits and all that. So, you know, I think that this is a really exciting time. I don't want to get all down on it where there will be a small company that's going to come up with a new way of doing things that we're all going to follow. Um uh, and I'm really yeah. encouraged that that we're in this time right now because this is when, you know, 08 0809, that's when, you know, the Airbnbs and the Ubers and all that kind of came out of it, right? That was the crucible for for that new way of doing work. This is exactly the same time as that. So we're going to have something three or four years from now that we're going to wonder how we ever did without. Well, and I'll tell you who's cracked the code on this. It's Starbucks. So mm -hmm. I, um, the head of my implementations, uh, we're promoting her uh, to a, a technical product manager job. And, um, and so I was trying to backfill her position, right? And, um, and I went to my, you know, this is an entry level tech job, but this is a job that every SaaS company in the world has, which is an implementation person. How do I onboard new clients and get them using the platform as quickly as possible? Um, and it pays good and it has benefits and it has a 401k. And, and so I went to my buddy because I knew he had a daughter and she's like, you know, in her early twenties and she's working at Starbucks and, um, and I told her like, you know, this is going to be like a $15,000 a year raise and all this stuff. And you'll be working from home and all this stuff. Um, and she didn't take the job. And then I went to my cousin and I, I, she has a daughter and I'm like, Hey, I, you know, I'm looking for someone to do this job. Would your daughter be interested? It's like same kind of age group, same thing. She works at Starbucks. Starbucks made a deal with ASU online to provide employees that work like 30 hours a week with free college credits oh my they will God. pay for college now wow. here's the thing it's not like real i mean okay i'm not saying that this asu online degree is not good i don't know but i will tell you it's not like real it's not like going to like university of phoenix where you're a professor and you have a cohort and you're in there banging out work together all the time they literally get assignments during the week and they have a week to complete them my guess is they either use AI or people overseas in India or the Philippines to grade all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I doubt there's a professor reading it all. So it, in that respect, it is pure genius on ASU Online's part because it is just a moneymaker. It's just like selling an online course over and over again. You build the content one time and you just, like, just collect money on it. Right. The other part is I'm sure Starbucks negotiated an insane rate. So like a credit, if I was to go to ASU online, it's like 560 bucks per course credit. So you hmm. figure a four credit course, that's gonna be like 2K a course. Um, but I'm never gonna meet with a teacher, right? So the person, and I'm sure Starbucks is getting this for 25 bucks a credit or something right. like that. There's no way they're paying 2000 bucks for an hour no chance. to do school. No chance. Because they have hundreds of thousands of employees, right? Mm -hmm. so, so both these girls, turn me down for this job because the perception of having to pay for school on their own was just too much for them to grasp when they were going to be, if they actually did the math, I, I believe they would have come out ahead. They could yeah. have still got their degree through ASU online. Um, and they would have come out ahead because they would have made more money and had a 401k and gotten like, instead of being a barista, which is only going to lead you to being a barista, yeah. they would have gotten like a tech job experience so yeah and 
here's the other thing I want to talk about. This is we were talking about labor too. And I get, like, I've been there. I've been the manager and I had a stack of applications and I'm constantly hiring, right? And I know that in the last couple of, the last year, they just, there wasn't a stack of applications. So it's like, you can't even make that case. But not every company didn't have employees, right? Right. Like, there were companies that had employees. Yep. That people wanted to work there. Even during the pandemic, even when they could have gotten money to sit at home, they chose to work there because they were, because those companies were doing it right. So not every business didn't have employees. I would, I would suggest poorly managed businesses didn't have employees. I think you hit the nail on the head there. That that's exactly right. You know, and I mean, a lot of people in our industry of the last two years were made jobless through no, like they had no control over it. Um, Right, that decision was made for them. Um, but you know, those that continued to have you know employment at the job that they had pre-pandemic, and they're still there today, and they and they made the conscious decision to stay where they're at. And there there could be a lot of reasons. Maybe they weren't as affected by the pandemic as other businesses were. But you know, I I think that there's a lot to be said for the organizational culture in in the business. You have to look at what's going on differently in those companies versus the ones that are struggling still to this day to find people. And I think back to my experience with Fairmont and St. Regis, like these were two culture heavy, culture first organizations that, that over subtly, but over long periods of time really got you to buy into the, the why they did things the way that they did them. And yes, there's a prestige factor working for a luxury hotel brand when you're in the industry, there's no doubt about it, but that's not what keeps people around because I saw a lot and I even personally had a lot of experiences in, in these a couple of these uh, hotels where like culture be damned like I, I I don't get paid enough to deal with this I got to get out of here and ultimately yeah. you know ended up coming around and being okay but like culture isn't everything but it's all but at the same time it's everything because that yep. sometimes could be the thing to bring you around when you've had a bad experience to be like no this is a one-off it's not how things are done on the regular and you can start seeing the forest through the trees a little bit. And, and I think that that deserves, uh, in this conversation, uh, it, it has to be a, a point of, I don't know what reflection or, or investigation into, to, you know, what are some of these great companies doing? Um, and benefits is one thing, but sometimes just having a good purpose and coming in and knowing why you get out of bed in the morning and, and being okay with working weekends and, and having a great boss and having, you know, a, a good team to work with and you believe in the product and like that, it, just like in operations, there's a lot of layers in the culture discussion. There's a lot of layers and there's not one silver yep. bullet. Well, and it's interesting. I, I've got like seven or eight unpublished blogs that I just have to get, stop being lazy and put on the website. <laughs> but my, my buddy was, uh, He's doing uh, marketing uh, for Fitbit and he was in a Best Buy, you know, talking to the mm -hmm. team and whatnot. And he was talking to his employee and the boy was, he was like not paying attention or whatever. And he's like, well, don't you want to learn more about this product so you can do a better job? And the kid was like, nah, don't care. What do I care? Basically said, I don't give a S, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, like, like you, you, you can't turn that employee into uh, that guy doesn't care about Best Buy. Right. He doesn't care. Like yep. he, this is just a thing that he does to kill time because of whatever party he is in his life. But 
a great manager can turn that employee around, but he's not going to get them to care about Best Buy. He's right. going to get the employee to care about the other employees and the manager's approval. Right. That's right. That's the only like, and that's the truth of most of these hospitality jobs is that, you know, nobody cares that they are working for, they care about the person they're working for and the people they're working with. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my biggest complaint always has been with culture, especially like, and I believe 100% you've got to have a high achieving, high focused, like culture. My, my, it's kind of like uh, communism or like religion where like, you know, people ruin it all, right? Like communism, mm -hmm. in theory, Marge, communism works in <laughs> theory, but like uh, one of the best Homer Simpson quotes ever, right. but like, you know, or like religion's amazing, uh, except for the people that like, you know, people in yeah. religion always wreck, you know, the message. And and so it's like, you know, at PF Chang's, we used to do so much culture training. And we, we would spend like uh, like an entire like day of the training, like really going over what made us different and all this stuff. But then we had like a manager that was screwing over all the employees at one of the right. locations. And it's like, you know, so culture is one of those things where it has to be practiced. And, and when you do train it, in my opinion, it should not be trained on day one. Um, it should be trained every day in shift meetings. You know what that's I right. mean? Like that's where you train culture and then you live that culture. And if you're not, because if you have a guy who's sitting around telling you how we care about all the employees and, and like we're an employee focused company, and then he's yelling at the employees, well, that just makes people go, eh. Yep. Th yep. Th this is just another entity that's full of BS. That's right. And I'm not going to do what they're supposed to do because this is bull. Yeah. And, you know, people are just looking for reasons, whether it's checklists, they're just looking for reasons to be rebels, right? Yeah. And, and so when you don't live up to your culture, when you don't use the data I'm doing for you, when you don't care about the work you're making me do, when you're doing those kinds of things, it's just a reason for me to justify putting myself first. Right. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we all know the, the line level employee that's like, you know, this is just a job. I can't wait to get out of here. Like that, that person, some of you listening may have been that person. I, I was in some of those early jobs. Um, but as you go up the chain and you get into, into like more serious high level jobs, if you're experiencing that at the top of the food chain and the work, you know, you, you've got an MBA, I have an MBA. I, you know, I spent a lot of time, money and energy trying to go out and get this degree that I thought was going to help my career. And it helped me in other ways, but like, you know, I, I take what I do very seriously. And if you're going to bring me in, in this high level, high paying job and and effectively, you know, treat me or somebody in my position as if I was that kid who didn't, who didn't see the value in the work that they were doing. And so therefore, to your point, they kind of like, they're looking to become a rebel. Like if you don't take the serious work that I'm doing seriously, because you just view it as busy work, that's going to affect me just like it's going to affect that, that entry level person. And it may manifest in different ways, but I think the higher up the chain you go, it's not that it's more important to make sure that you're engaging your senior leaders, but I think like when you have senior people in organizations, nine, I would argue nine, eight or nine out of 10 of those people 
a lot of their self-worth and value and how they perceive themselves in the world is wrapped up in what they do for a living and who they do it for. Yeah. So there's a whole other level of responsibility that you have if you're sitting above them on the food chain to to make sure that they feel valued and important because you're 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 playing a different psychological game here than with somebody who's making, you know, entry level job who's, you know, just there for a few months to kill time. Um, and you know, I, I've seen that firsthand, I've experienced it firsthand on both sides of the coin. Um, and that's just a, that's another little thing. I think that has to be a part of the conversation here in hospitality, because, um, you know, if we're going to get out of this, we're going to change this industry in the way that we, we all agree needs to be changed. That's the funny thing. There's almost no dissension (laughs) amongst any, (laughs) amongst any, you know, anybody here yet. We still have trouble moving the ball down the field. And, um, I, I, I mean, we could, this, this could be an eight hour long podcast talking about these things and pontificating them. But at the end of the day, we, we got to see, um, uh, companies make some change and, and just back to what I was talking about initially, like that is in my own company, that's what we're trying to do. I don't know if we're going to fail spectacularly or not, but you know, at least at the end of the day, we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, well, that didn't work, but at least we tried. Yeah, no, totally. So you can see there's a lot of structure to this podcast. Uh, I think that's evident. Uh, so, uh, as a side note, I'm like, how long did you live in Bermuda? Uh, a year to the day, literally a year to the day. You had to have a return flight to get into the country on a work visa. Oddly enough, uh, even with your visa, you had to leave. Uh, I bought it, my return ticket for one year to the day from when I arrived and I didn't change my flight ticket. Uh, was it wonderful there? It was, uh, it, yeah, it, it was, it was wonderful. It was a learning experience. Um, we went through a category five hurricane while I was there, which, uh, decimated the islands. Um, I learned a lot. I had a lot of experiences in, it was the first time I, I mean, you know, full disclosure here. I grew up in a, a relatively, uh, mono, what do you, what do they call those things? Um, like a when it's like one culture, one one people, what like kind of whatever that is, like a pretty white, monocultural, monocultural, like f- relatively white suburb of a relatively white city, uh, at the time, and didn't have a lot of exposure to people from other cultures, other parts of the country, let, other parts of Canada, let, let alone other parts of the world, and so moving to Bermuda was the first time that I was just kind of ripped out of everything that I knew and put into a place that was Western and familiar, but completely foreign at the same time. And so it, like there were instances where I felt safe and I knew what was going on. And then other times where I'm like, I really don't understand what's going on around me right now. Uh, and that was my actually, and funny enough, that was my very first official management job at the same time. Uh, so I, uh, I learned very quickly, uh, all of the mistakes that, uh, you know, you know, I made all the mistakes that, that are made early on, but in this environment that wasn't what I, it was a foreign environment to me. So, uh, I think that that experience not only probably kept me in hospitality going forward, but kind of shaped how I view leadership, um, even to this day. Naturally cool. Um, okay. So, uh, I want to move to the next question. Let's just do that. Uh, 
What is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Well, growing recreation rentals, that's the big thing for us right now. Um, you know, the, this company here, we've been trying to figure out what it is that we want to do. Just, I mean, uh, basically wrapping up the conversation we just had, what do we want this company to be? What do we try to do this different? Um, and, and how do I bring some more of this, this hotel hospitality mindset, whether it's practices, mindset processes, uh, into this organization and, and by doing that, is that an effective platform for growth? So we, uh, one of the things that we did at the beginning of this year, which, you know, I guess hard to believe it's pushing the end of March now, uh, is we established an advisory board for our company. And so we brought on, um, some experts in the field that, that have either grown companies in the past or they're, uh, that are adjacent to short-term rentals or they are short-term rental, um, managers, or they provide sort of like SaaS companies for short-term rental management companies. So we brought them on and that has just been one of the best moves that we could have made <clears throat> because it's, it just, it, it brings in more voices, helps us have, I mean, I have a million blind spots and it just helps illuminate a lot of those blind spots and the direction that we should be going with things. Uh, we're trying to figure out if we're going to stay in single family homes or if we're going to go into buildings. Uh, if we're going to go into buildings, how do we get in front of building owners so that we can create like a, a, a short-term rental hotel hybrid kind of a situation, like an Airbnb hotel, nice. right? Um, so we're, we're in, um, we're in, while we're operating and running these homes for people and still trying to grow that side of the company, we're sort of in discovery mode at the same time. We're like, okay, we now have proof of concept. Now, how do we make this a real thing? So it's interesting because I tried to, so there's a lot of things when you're an entrepreneur, you know, where you go, okay, I got to just, like, we've thought about getting a board of advisors. We've talked about it several times, but then we've never actually like pulled the trigger on like reaching out to people and actually doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's because we've been working like on growing the business. So it's kind of like, you know, and, and it's one of those things where I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's working out so well for you yeah. because it might be worth the investment of time now that we're sort of in a growth mode and we're hiring more people and, and you know, there's less and less sort of task work to be done on a daily basis for like me and my partner. Mm -hmm. As we start to build out our team, it might be time to start looking at, okay, how do we do this? You know, how do we make that? Cause it's an investment to go get those people. A hundred percent. And then to come up with a meeting once a quarter and mm -hmm. we bring everybody in and what are we going to talk about? Like you, you spend a lot of time just managing that process and that's time that you're not managing your business. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I totally understand. You know what the, the light bulb moment was for me was when I, I, I sit as, as an advisor on for two other companies and I, I get asked relatively frequently to, to do it for, for other people and that are building hospitality companies. And I'm not bragging. It's just like, that's, that seems to be the way that a lot of people are uh, able to find their way through this industry. And I think that that might be, might be due to the fact that there's so many people that don't have a hotel background or a hospitality background that are getting into the business right now. And so they kind of like, they don't even know where to start. Um, and so they look at a guy who's been doing it for a long time, like, Hey, you, 
probably know more than me. Why don't you come and advise us? But I, I had been sitting in a couple of these advisory meetings for other companies and thinking to myself, like, like there's a really good brain trust here. Not just me. I'm looking at the other advisors that they brought on thinking like, man, I, I, I'm, I am learning things in this meeting from these other people. And I've been doing this a long time. What could they do for me if they sat on the board for my company? And that's when I had this light bulb moment, like, well, let's find out. Let's start it. And nice. it's been, it's been really, uh, really effective so far. That's great. Yeah. Well, I might have to, I might take this, I might just take this as an impetus to start looking for my board of advisors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let me do this question for you. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Uh, the, the, the fire hose of ideas and, and eliminating and from my vocabulary with this company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so easy. I found this and my wife is so helpful with this. She's in advertising. And she says the number one thing that's hard for her and her, her job is, is telling companies to get rid of, when you ask them what they do, get them to just say one thing. Don't get them to just say, and, 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 and we do this and we do this. Yeah. And that's been the thing that's been hardest for me to just distill down the message of what we do, uh, who our target customer is. Um, and, and at the same time, constantly coming up with ideas, constantly coming up with direction and making sure the wheels stay on this thing. Um, I know that's, I'm not specifically answering your question, but yeah. I, you know, when you're build, building a company, like it just, it never, like my brain literally never stops. I'll wake up at two in the morning and write something down. It literally doesn't stop. No. And I was like that for like the first five years. Like I wasn't present, even though I was around because yeah. I was legitimately if like I was out in the back porch smoking a cigar, I was working on the business nonstop. My wife would come out and I'd be like, ah, but I'm in the middle of this thought. Like I got to figure this out, especially because when you first start off, you're like so much pressure to get movement going. And like everything takes for uh, everything takes 10,000 times longer than you expect it to. And right. it's just, it's a constant battle. Now, one thing I can tell you that really worked well for me, I don't know if you're familiar with the product, it's called Trello. Um, no. And there's a lot of different like Trello boards. So they're like Kanban boards. Uh, that's what Toyota uses, like constant mm -hmm. improvement boards. But like they're just basically, it's it's free. You can just log in with your Google account or whatever. But you have like, so in agile development, right? You have your, uh, your current sprint, you have your next sprint, and then you have your development backlog. And so what you can do is you can build all these cards and you can even make like templated cards is what we have now. And you just put your ideas on these cards in your development backlog. And so when you have an amazing idea, you just capture it and you put it in the Trello board on your development backlog. And then they, once every couple of weeks, you go through your development backlog and you start organizing the things uh, and priority, maybe the most important on top. And then as you start to work on them, you move them from like sort of like column to column as oh. these like little entities. It's just, we use it for how we develop the platform. Um, it's how we track our development and uh, we're about to make our whole development process like um, more sort of formalized. I think it would be a good way to put it. Yeah. And so, but yeah, the Trello really helps because you do have a million ideas and the prop, the point is, and it's funny cause I was just, 
interviewed for a podcast like last week and they've asked me to speak at this DevOps conference uh, in a couple of weeks. But, you know, part of building a business is also just getting stuff done. Yeah. Like you can start 50,000 ideas and get 10% into them. And that's the best way to go out of business ever. You know, like you got to pick the <laughs> dominant thought and you just got to go and hammer on it until it's done. And then you go get the next dominant thought and it is, it's hard and it takes a, a, so much discipline. It does. I'm an it's avid good. Evernote user uh, and I've got, you know, oh, chicken, yeah. chicken scratch uh, notebooks all over the place. And I'm always going back like, I kind of remember roughly where I was in the notebook when I had this thought. So let me go back and like <laughs> thumb through all of these pages to try to find, you know, more detail, but yeah, no, thanks for bringing this up. This, I think this could be really valuable. Well, and what's funny is I was a huge Evernote user too for years. It was your digital junk drawer. That's what they called it back in yeah. the day. And I even paid for it for a while, but you know, Apple did what Apple does and and they went and they looked at what Evernote was doing and they said, wow, people really like that. Let's just give it away in notes for free. Yep. You know, and I was, and so you're like, man, and I don't know how many businesses they've destroyed. I mean, think about all the people who had flashlight apps at the beginning. They you have know, a term for that. They have it. It's what's it called? There's, it's like, you've been like, I don't know, like they Sherlocked you or something like that. Like there's a famous thing that happens exactly what you're talking about that has now defined this, this like, Thing where apple just comes in and destroys your company yeah well they just <laughs> what they do is they look to see what apps are being downloaded yeah. the most yeah. and then they go well why are people downloading that oh well it just says these 10 things well three of our apps do that but this is the really cool thing so let's just add that one really cool thing and the next thing you know your app sales go to nothing and that's what's happening to evernote right now too yeah like you know, you know because i'm just like yeah. I was going to say Siri was a standalone app uh, for a long time and arguably more functional. Um, yeah. Right. Before anyway, that's that. Yeah. I don't want to get in hot water with Apple, but uh, yeah, wow. it's yeah. No, Evernote. Evernote's been a lifesaver for me for a long time. Um, and, but it's just a you know that's that stream of consciousness, right? The yeah. The the getting ideas down and then figuring out what to spend energy on and what's just garbage and you shouldn't be doing. One other thing though, you should check out too, if you haven't checked it out, it's called GTD, Getting Things Done. Mm -hmm. And you can watch an hour long YouTube video on it and the guy explains the whole thing, but it's essentially what you're doing. It's just, as soon as you get an idea, put it into a platform, whether it's Evernote, Trello, uh, they have platforms that are specifically around GTD. And then you just data dump it out as soon as it comes in your brain, because you'll lose it immediately. Mm -hmm. you, you have these sparks of brilliance for 10 seconds and then you look at the picture and you're like, oh, it's gone. But if you if you just do that and then the same thing, you go through it, you cull through it every couple of weeks and you determine what things you actually want to work on and not. Um, yeah. but th there was like Omni, Omni something, Omni Soft or whatever was a whole GTD platform. But uh I, you know, the thing that I moved to the reason I moved to notes was that you can just Siri it in. Yeah. And that that was that's how they nailed me on it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're in you're in the wall garden now, as am I. You know, I'm I'm talking well, to you on a MacBook I, right now <laughs> with no, my no, iPhone I'm beside a, me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a thousand percent Apple. Like oh, I have yeah. personal products. They are the worst people to develop for. As a person who most like half my usage on our app is iPads. Yeah. Um, we have to have an Apple like makes it so they don't want you to have a web app. They want you to hard code a Apple app and they do everything humanly possible 
to make having a web app, which is what you want to have mm -hmm. because it works on everything. Um, they don't want you to do that. And yeah. they just make it so hard. I mean, we've only been in business for seven years and I would conservatively say we've spent 18 months of solid development time building features to work on Apple that we were just able to implement on like Chrome and Google and wow. other browsers. It, it wow. is, it is like the amount of money we've spent, like, you know, uh, and time just yeah. trying to get things to work on their platform without having to have a native, like without having to have a full board. But you got to be there, is, right? You have to be there. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, they, well, they created a marketplace. So what are you going to, nah, screw Apple. I'm just going to be on Android. Okay. Right. Well, then right. you're not going to get anybody who thinks they're like cool and, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, what is the one thing you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? I I thought that there was going to be more uh, learning and acceptance of the short-term rental um, industry. I use that term kind of loosely because it's so connected uh, compared to hotels. I sat around plenty of boardroom tables over the years complaining about market share that short-term rentals were taking and why would anybody stay in one of them? They're not professional and they're inconsistent. And just look at this terrible house. You know, why would anybody stay there? Meanwhile, market share for for hotels has, has been declining for years uh relative to the vacation rental space and that started with leisure travel but that's now i think as people's travel needs and desires change that creep is happening with business travel or the kind of the blending of leisure and business travel group not so much yet but maybe down the road so i guess what i thought that that hotels would be doing by now is is seeing some of the successes that short-term rentals have with respect to technology adoption and how it can be so much easier to run your business and you can be more efficient with less people you can make more money uh all those things that you know hotels are are pretty happy about or pretty pretty happy to do uh but the one big thing is technology adoption in the hotel space yeah. that vacation rentals have have just that's why the industry has been successful. So I'm really yeah. surprised still to this day that there's this, uh, nobody wants to be tip of the spear in the hotel space. Everybody's waiting for the next guy to do it. And I understand that there's scalability challenges like Marriott with their 8,000 hotels and 30 plus brands is not going to just implement something without putting it through rigorous testing. It's You can't scale at that level. But, you know, I would have thought by now there would have been a, a, an upstart hotel company that would have kind of come to the forefront uh, with, with that and demonstrated, a, a better way to do it that other people could kind of get behind. I'm just surprised it hasn't happened yet. I thought it was interesting that Marriott has those houses now. I thought that was cool. Now they're more yep. expensive, but what's nice about them is that if you can't, you can cancel a day before and you're not going to get nailed. Um, yeah. and they also are really trying to push them. And so you can get crazy good points on them, which I'm like addicted to Marriott points. So, oh yeah, that, that's yeah. good for me. That's but, uh, you bring up a good, but that's an interesting point though. I mean, that is an indication of where the industry is going in general. Marriott's yeah. putting time and money and energy into that. Accor, who's the parent company of Fairmont, and they've got forty brands, I think, under their umbrella, based in Paris, uh, based in France. They're doing the same thing, and so you've got two of the biggest hotel companies in the world. They can see the writing on the wall. I think you know we're good. It will follow suit, and this it, short term rentals will get. Um, 
institutionalized is maybe is probably the wrong way to, to say it, but you know, you know what I mean? Like when you're thinking Marriott yeah. versus, you know, mom and pop motel, that, that idea, uh, that's coming, but I, it's still many years out. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, so here's my big gripe with short-term rentals. One, I got screwed out of a week in uh, three days in Paris or four days in Paris during the pandemic. Uh, I got kind of abused by like the guy, it was a Verbo and you know, mm. they, we were supposed to go the week Paris shut down and the guy was like, well, I'll just like rebook you in the fall. No big deal. But then he canceled our ration. They took my money, paid him. Right. Oh, and then, God. then we could never get the guy on the phone again. And so he got my, you know, 2000 bucks or whatever. Uh -huh. um, Cause he had like a, an apartment, like a block from the Eiffel tower. I mean, like you would sit on the patio and you just saw like the structure right there. Wow. It was crazy. Huh. Um, it was like, such a cool place, but like my problem with Verbo and why I generally would prefer to stay in a resort or a hotel is because I don't like, like, here's uh, so many of these places. It's like, Hey, we need a new, we need a TV for the Verbo. Okay. Take the, the old TV from the den and throw it in the Verbo and yeah. then we'll buy a new TV at Costco for our house. Oh, hey, we, you know, it's time to get rid of this lumpy mattress. Well, let's go throw it in the Verbo and then we'll, you know, we'll go buy a new mattress here. Yeah. And you, some of these places you go to, you're just like, this is gross and it sucks and it's not comfortable. And like, I don't want to sleep in like, 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 I know a Marriott bed's comfortable, but like if Marriott like said, okay, you want to be listed on the Marriott site, then you've got to like live up to this standard. Yeah. That to me is like the, the win-win of both worlds because the big problem with resorts, right? Because like, I was at the J, I just got back from the Moon Palace. I was in the Westin in Hawaii. I was, you know, I traveled quite a bit. I was at the JW and Marco Beach, like in the last, the last six months. Like the JW and Marco Beach, the problem with the JW is that I don't want to have an $80 breakfast. Like I can't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just yeah. it's breakfast and I'm not going to sit down and eat like this. Uh, you know, but I did like that JW does have like a little cafe and I can get a $40 breakfast, which I get it to JW, so it's fine. But like, you know, the thing is, is like the problem with a typical hotel room, especially when you're on like a, like a week long, like resort stay mm -hmm. is you just can't eat out that much. That's right. Like you, sometimes you just want to make some cereal, you know what yep. I mean? Or make a peanut yep. butter and jelly. And, and so that's where the Verbo is the best ever because you just have a kitchen and you can go out and eat a big dinner. But you can eat small other meals and not gain 20 pounds. Yeah. And also not spend ten thousand dollars on food. You know, it's just like yeah. So I do think like at these resorts, one of the things they have to look at is, you know, does it need to be more of like the, do we need to expand the kitchenette area mm -hmm. in some of these rooms so that you can actually have enough space to prepare an actual like make some oatmeal or you know what I mean? Like yeah. just, I know exactly what you, and you just explained our reason for existing right yeah. there it's it's bringing that's it's the standardization and the things that you expect from a luxury hotel and putting them into a vacation yeah. rental that is very standardized with a yeah. predictable experience and you know yeah. you're all you are just like you know you're going to have the same experience and maybe in some hotels as you did with your paris experience you're going to that's yeah. just a kind of a function of sort of the gig economy of these these vacation yeah. rentals but you know i think if you if you start recognizing certain brands in the space that are that are just professionalizing it, like what we're trying yeah. to do, maybe you're more apt to go try them out the next time you go to another city. If you're on Airbnb, you can like anytime you're on Airbnb or even on Verbo, you can click on the host name on this on the 
place that you're looking at and see all the other places that they run. Well, ours just happens to be a company name and rather than, you know, Adam's rental and, yeah. uh, and you can see all the, all the spots that we run and, um, hopefully, hopefully that grows. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because I agree with you a thousand percent. That is an issue in the industry and that's, that's something that needs to get addressed and we're trying to do that. And you know what I was just thinking when you said that is you need to put your logo on all the photos you, oh, because yeah. no one's, no one's drive drilling in to like, look at who owns the property and you can't probably do a lot with the color schemes and something else, but you've got to find a way to get your branding out there because then you can be advertising like on Facebook, like, Hey, when you go to the, like, and you, you know, you can do it for Seattle or whatever, you know, when you start doing your web advertising, you can be advertising your brand of vacation rentals and exactly. go book it through whatever your portal of choices. We don't care. Yep. That's exactly right. right. Because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to build a brand within a portal. So, I mean, we're trying to, I mean, basically we're just, we're running a bunch of one room hotels. We're, we're, yeah. you know, it's kind of like running a hotel company. It's, it's, it's very similar. And that's, that's what was so appealing to it is you're, you're doing all the same things. You're just not doing it in one tower. You're doing it spread yeah. out. Sure. But then, you know, the nice thing about the, so the nice thing about the, the VRBO as we wrap up this part of the conversation is, or, or this model is it's not as capital intensive, right? Cause the capital requirement is spread out over thousands of investors mm -hmm. versus one guy who's got to come up with $25 million or a hundred million dollars to go buy this piece of beachfront property, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of models like you know, there, I know that there's some short-term rental investment, uh, like funds or REITs out there that you can, you can invest in, uh, a portfolio of short-term rental properties with a minimum sure. amount down like that, that exists. And, I mean, who knows if that's the direction that we'll go eventually or not. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I will tell you though, the other side of it is, I mean, trying to get in front of homeowners is the well, is by far the hardest part of this job we're trying to grow the company oh. one house at a time like the scalability of this thing is 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 the big headache that we're trying to resolve um yeah is how do you how do you scale a company one property at a time one door at a time it's very hard yeah it's almost like yeah no you you've almost just got to create the demand and then have them come to you because exactly the individual reach out like with cell phones you're never going to get anyone yeah. You, you know, you can't text them or call them. Um, but I, I do like the idea of like going to one of these rental, like one of these apartment condo buildings. And if you can get, you know, 50% of the, the people who are renting to kind of come under your umbrella. Oh, yeah. You know, then you just get that economy of scale. You know, one of my favorite places in uh, condos is um, is a place called the Charter in Beaver Creek. And it's a wonderful hotel. But it's run by Doubletree, but it's all individually owned con to condo hotel. So like, oh, yeah. all the condos are owned by individual people. And to me, like that's the dream because you have built-in housekeeping, restaurants, yep. front desk, the portal, and all you do is tell them, hey, uh, hey, we're not coming up next weekend. Put it up on the website, and if they can sell it, they will. And if you know somebody stays longer in their condo, they can just push that reservation into a different condo. Yeah, I think same I think Silverado and Napa's got a similar model. Um, yeah, it, I mean that. I mean that, you're absolutely right. That that would be the dream. And if we had a chance to get um, ownership or management of a building and kind of create our own little playground, uh, you know, that's yeah. 
that would that's definitely something that we're trying to figure out you know if it's the right move uh so yeah i guess just to sum up your question 20 minutes ago <laughs> this is this is that that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night but it's all it's i i feel it's all good oh absolutely and you know the reality is is that like you're you're trying to you're you know you're morphing the offering yeah. you know and that's so much of the time that's where like the the things explode you know what i mean mm -hmm. like you took something that was 80 percent great but the, the original people can't see they can't see it you know they just saw what they originally saw take that 80 percent and go hey if we just tweak it like this like what's like vrbo these are the things that people hate about v vrbos yeah crappy sheets crappy towels things don't work kind yeah. of not like new pictures are misleading and, yeah. yeah and you just go how do we fix that yeah. part of it but keep all the good which yeah. is i got a kitchen i'm downtown but you know it's... well uh adam we have reached the final question of our uh podcast today which is the war story give okay. me a war story could be anything you don't have to mention names i just want one of those cringeworthy hilarious i can't believe we got through this type of thing yeah i the one thing that always that, that i it doesn't keep me up anymore but that probably took years off my life uh <laughs> was living like living and working through a full-blown citywide strike hotel strike um oh. yeah i was a uh, i was a department head in san francisco and uh it was a, ended up being i think it was a 90-day strike slash lockout Jeez. um where all the hotel workers at virtually every hotel in the city were on strike and the i remember you know the day we knew that this was coming we knew that the vote was happening you know we were internally as a management team preparing and putting contingency plans in place and like are we going to stay open are we going to close how are we going to get guests in things like like how are we going to let them know what's going on all the, all kinds of stuff and at the time this is back in i think it was 2005 um if anybody wants to look at the news about that like back then in san francisco big hotel strike um the 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 thing that really struck me about it was you know obviously the noise and the difficulty of getting people in and and us as managers you know going into work to try to run this hotel and everybody rolling up their sleeves and washing pots and cleaning rooms and doing all that stuff and bringing in help from other hotels it, it was all that and that was there's a lot of camaraderie there but the thing that really struck me was how people that that you thought you were I don't want to say friends, but friendly with and that you saw every day yeah. and you knew their kids' names and you knew their, you know, their personal situations and you felt like you had good dialogue and there was a lot of mutual respect there and all those things. And the things that you need to like be successful in a high pressure, high end hotel, like it, none of that stuff happens by accident. All of it, you know, it's, it takes a lot of work. How it could go from that to just complete complete like aggression and vitriol and like intimidation tactics and calling you names when you're going in the building and and not you know if you're coming out and you're just you know i saw you on monday frank and you know everything was great we had a good conversation and now it's tuesday night and i'm, I'm bringing you out some water and sandwiches because you're out here in the cold and you're telling me to you know f off and and how i'm the worst person that you've ever seen in your life like I, I was never, and that was three months of that. And there were different tactics Jeez. that were taken, right? Like back and forth with how, you know, people were moved around to different hotels to pick it. So they kind of moved our team, our, 
they moved our employees away from our hotel and put them to another hotel and people from another hotel came up and picketed in front of us. I think that's obviously a tactic to try to ramp up the pressure, but I, I was never able to really square that. Um, even after the strike and, and you think like, okay, so we have a resolution and everybody's finally coming back to work. How do you look that guy in the eye again? And how does he, and he knows what he did or she knows what she did. Yeah. How does she look at you and expect things to go back to the way that they were before the strike happened? And I, well, I think that that experience changed me because I, I was young and naive as a manager at the time. And I, I kind of thought that I could get by on, on being friendly with, with my worker, with people that work with me and, and, and having a more peer to peer relationship. Uh, I'm not explaining that very well. You not friends, but like close to being friends and, and you could but do like it, work, but like work friends. Yeah. You know? Like work friends. Like you're yeah. Not hanging out. You're not hanging out and like, they're not coming to your kids, like, you know, birthday party. But at the same time, like we spend 60 hours a week together. So why not be cool with each other and hang exactly. out and talk and be friendly? Uh, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, and so after that whole experience, like even through my, my later career and I had other experiences kind of similar to that is, I mean, the hotel business, you're always in a lot of places, you kind of have that union management um, situation. Uh, it, it just colored how it, it colored how I look at um, manager subordinate relationships. Um, it also, so it made me much more distant at the same, at, at in one respect, it, it made me more, um, uh, not command and control, but definitely kept a lot of things at arm's length with, with how I interacted with, with staff, um, whether it was a union or a non-union environment, it's just because, you know, I think I was naive at the time to think that they viewed me the same way. And sure. clearly that wasn't the case. Some maybe, but most no. And uh yeah anyway that I, I don't really know how to wrap up that story other than just you know it's just amazing kind of sometimes you get these these um monumental experiences in this business that that completely shift your perspective on things and i think what's important to say though at the same time is like it trying not to have that really push you in a bad direction permanently you got to try to sure. find balance right try to find the middle ground between those two things um yeah that was uh that's something that uh yeah was was those were three months for sure. <laughs> Man. Yeah. We had the same experience hiring friends and family and where you think you're doing someone a favor and you think you're like giving them like a shot at something and they just look at you as the boss Yeah, and you're like, but like we're buddies. So right. right. No, like, you know, like, like we're friends giving you or... a shot to do something completely different that yeah. I could make you have a job. And I'm like taking literally money out of my pocket to do that. Like my pocket, not like the company, big yeah. brother's pocket. It's my pocket. Like right. I'm big brother. Like that's it. And you just like spit in my face and like quit with like no moment, like with no notice and just blow it off. And you're like, dude, yeah. like what? Really? Yeah. And I've heard it's so crazy. Um, yeah. So that that's a good one. I've not heard that story before. All right. I, good. So there you go. Awesome. There you go. 
Well, thank you guys so much for listening to the Order Up Show. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Had a great time hanging out with you today. And uh, keep listening for a new episode.